I encourage you to open your Bible this morning to John chapter 1 again. The opening of John's Gospel, which he tells us in chapter 20, he writes that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. You know, one of the things I like about this song is looking at every one of the verses in it. It's almost as though John is writing that song. No, he's not. But the things he's saying, come and behold this. Come and behold this. Come and and look at this. What other one could be this? What other one could do this? Come and consider this. Come and behold this one. This is what John is encouraging us to do. Even as a room full of believers. And if there's unbelievers here, which it would not surprise me, just because... Throughout the church age, Christ warns that even in the congregation and the gathering of His people, there are wheat and tares. But together, whoever you are, we would come and behold Jesus Christ as John knew Him. And the first 18 verses of John's Gospel really have been devoted to and are devoted to helping us to help filter through John's understanding of who Jesus is. Throughout the rest of the book, he's going to be telling us fantastic, amazing things about Jesus, His life, His ministry, His teaching, His miracles, about the Savior Himself. And here at the outset, he wants to make sure we understand that throughout the rest of the book, this is the one he's talking about. So when he talks about Jesus, and you read Jesus' name, Throughout the letter, think this. And in these opening verses, he's told us this so far. This is what he means by Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the pre-existent one, the eternal one. Go all the way back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And to know Jesus, you've got to go backwards. You've got to go back before that. That's who this Jesus is. The one to know Him, you have to know Him without beginning, without end, in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To know Jesus, He is one with the Father, but distinct. He was with God, face to face with God. The word there, face to face, speaks of equality. He's one with the Father, the Father, the Son, and of course the Spirit as well. They're one, they're face to face with one another. Face to face also a word meaning the intimacy of relationship. The Father's delight in the Son. The Son's love for the Father. The intimacy there that that nothing can tear apart. To know Jesus, you have to know Him this way. The preexistent one with the Father, yet distinct from the Father, yet He is, verse 1 ends, God Himself. Come and behold this one, John is saying. He's truly God. He goes on to tell us in verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him, you take Him out of the equation, was not anything made that was made. So if you're going to glory and rejoice in anything in creation, you've got to glory and rejoice in the one from whom it comes. And that's Jesus himself. To know Jesus, you've got to know him as the creator, the uncreated creator. 
In him was life, John says, which makes sense. He's the creator. Life comes from him. The Father spoke it into existence. The Son is the agent of creation who executes it. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. To know Christ is to know him as light in a world of darkness. The world is a dark place because of Genesis chapter 3. The the human heart is a darkened heart because of Genesis chapter 3, because of sin. But Christ is something altogether different. He is light. And we'll talk more about that once again this morning. And as we looked last week at John the Baptist, not for the sake of John the Baptist, but John the Baptist as a lamp who radiates Christ, It's all about Christ. So too now in verses 9, 10, and 11, John returns to helping us to better understand who this Christ is. Let's look at this passage together. Our focus this this morning is verses 9, 10, and 11. And the title of the message, The True Light of Christ and the Darkened Hearts of Man. The True Light of Christ and the darkened hearts of man. I'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for John's gospel. Father, I... I thank you that in your providence we're looking at this gospel on the heels of looking at the revelation of John in the book of Revelation. Father, one of the things we observed in our study of Revelation is the reality of the church in the church age. That, Father, even as the assembled gathering of the church, Lord, those who attend to your worship can be and often are guilty of hearts that drift away from Christ, compromise their faith, begin to give their hearts over to false teaching, even if it's a false teaching that says the name of Jesus, but it's Jesus plus something else. Father, we confess in our study there and even this morning, that what we saw in those seven churches is true in our own hearts as well. 
We are prone to drift, to compromise, to idolatry. We can be given to false teaching. We can be persuaded. But Father, we thank you that you have given to us the Gospel of John who writes that we may believe Jesus is the Christ, that he is all, that he is enough, that he is everything. That if we have drifted this morning, our hearts might be turned back to him. If idolatry has crept into our hearts, even as we sit here this morning, that we may see Christ in all of his glory and repent of all of our idols and turn to Jesus as the true king, the true God, the one with you distinct yet truly God. If our hearts have been given over to false teaching, if the enemy has crept in and, and tempted us to believe lies about Jesus, that he's not enough, that we need more than just Jesus, then today we praise you and thank you that you've given to us this vision of Jesus through John's eyes and through his pen that we may repent and profess Christ is enough, Christ is all. But Father, these things we can't do ourselves. We need your Spirit. We need you to come and do what we can't do for ourselves. Open our eyes to see and to behold these beautiful glories of Christ. And help us to understand the new revelation of Christ that's coming in the verses we're looking at this morning. And help us to believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to leave here with a renewed joy and passion and strength and vigor of faith in Jesus that He would be all. Speak to us this day. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what John is doing now is continuing to build his and our understanding of who Jesus is. So as we look at verses 9, 10, and 11, he's continuing to build upon verse 5. Go back and look. The light in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 4, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then we came to that section in verses 6, 7, 8 about John the Baptist. He's a lamp that radiates the light. Now in verse 9, he's returning to this metaphor of Jesus as the light, and he's helping us to go deeper into that. He's helping us to go deeper. Not just that we would know categorically, Jesus is light, the world is darkness, and move on. But that we would live upon this truth. And we would understand with some degree of depth of what it means that Jesus is the light. So as we look at this passage together, there's just two points to this message. Again, the title, The True Light of Christ and the Darkened Hearts of Man. And the two points really do focus upon the true light and then number two, the darkened hearts of man. So let's look together at this deeper understanding of the true light. The first point of the message this morning, the true light of Christ, the true light of Christ. Verse 9 says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now we learned again, Jesus is the light a couple of weeks ago in verses 4 and 5. There we said that light is an appropriate metaphor for Jesus because light is oftentimes pictures on a couple of different levels, truth and revelation, so on an intellectual level, Light reveals to us truth, reality, that we may know truth. 
That's what light does. Secondly, light symbolizes purity and holiness on a moral sense. So light pictures intellectual knowledge of truth, facts, reality, and it also pictures purity and holiness on a moral sense. So light is a great metaphor for Jesus because he is a perfect revelation of who God is. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. He's the perfect truth and revelation of who God is, and Christ is perfectly holy. So light is a perfect metaphor for Jesus. And that's what he uses in verses 4 and 5. Now in verse 9, he's simply taking that metaphor, and he's going to go deeper with it. He's going to tell us, something new about this life. He's going to go deeper into it. That this light is the true light. He's going to tell us it's the light that enlightens everyone. And he's going to tell us this light was coming into the world. Now you may sit there and say, are we really going to spend much time on those things? It seems we got it. We've got to go, what is it that is being taught here about Jesus? Jesus is the true light. So number one, under this first point, the true light is Christ. A couple subpoints. Number one, Jesus is that true light. He says in verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Well, what does that mean? He's already introduced Jesus as the light. Why now does he come back and introduce him as the true light? Well, we need to think about what that word means, true. And the, the idea of true in the Greek, has a, a various range of meanings. Some of them are very familiar to how we use it today. So, for instance, true can mean real or genuine. So the idea here is, and this is predominantly the way that we use it today, something that's true, it's real, or it's genuine. So, for instance, we read in, uh, or, or, or there may be, uh, in, in the book of Revelation, we read about, People who enter into the church who claim to be true, who claim to be genuine, who claim to be right, yet Jesus says they're false teachers. Jesus is the true light, the real, the genuine one, kind of in opposition to those who claim to be light, but they're not. So that's one way that we could certainly say John is upholding Jesus as the true light. He's the genuine, the real light. There's a lot of false counterfeits that come forward, but Jesus is set apart as the true one. Another way true is used is the opposite of what is false. When we get to John chapter 4, Jesus is going to speak of true worshipers. He's going to say in chapter 4 verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And what's he saying? He's, he's contrasting here that even among those who gather to worship God, even in a room like this, there are true worshipers and false worshipers. Just because we're all doing the same thing externally doesn't mean we're all true worshipers. There is a false worship. And again, Jesus spoke about that in the seven churches of Revelation as he walked around looking at people's hearts. And so certainly that understanding of true applies to Jesus of Nazareth. He is the true light, the true prophet, the true apostle. There are a lot of false ones out there but Christ is the true one. Those are some common ways we use the idea of true. But even those don't really get to the point. 
we can go deeper than that. Because in John's day, the Greeks used the idea of true in a deeper way. True can also mean the source of light. The source of light. So, for instance, we read in Matthew chapter 5, you, speaking of true believers, are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus himself says that as true believers, we are the light of the world. But make no mistake about it, we are not the true light. We are not the source of light. We are the light, just like we talked about last week with John the Baptist, and we talked about our role in the world as being lamps. Our role, we are light, not because we are so wonderful. We are light because there is a true light that has captivated us, that has overwhelmed us, that has conquered us, that dwells inside of us. We're being conformed into the likeness of that light who dwells with it. And that light is Jesus Christ. And we are the lamp. We're just like in your own home. You have a lamp. Maybe it's clear and the light shines through it. Don't give the glory to the lamp. It's the, 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 the bulb. It's the flame. That's where the source of light comes from. And John here is saying that in a world where there, there's a John the Baptist roaming around, and Jesus himself, as we talked about last week, will we'll call him a light later on. It's not because he is so wonderful. It's because Christ is so wonderful. Christ is so holy. Christ is so pure. Christ is so true. Christ is the revelation of God. It's because of John's proximity to Christ that he shines as a light. And the same is true for us. And so as when John says he's the true light, He's wanting us to understand in a world where there are other lights. There's only one true light. Every other light you see in the world, whether it be the church, whether it be an individual, don't praise the individual. Don't praise the church. It's Christ. He is what makes the difference. He's the true light, the source. But there's an even more fundamental a richer meaning here that's tied to John's word. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. The idea is that of ultimate or preeminent. So for example, we're going, we read in the Old Testament, God sent manna from heaven. Question, was that real manna? Manna is a type of bread. Was it real? When God sent manna from heaven, was that real bread? Absolutely it was. I mean, they, they had to eat it to live in the wilderness. And when we come to John chapter 6, same book we're in right now, John is going to, Jesus himself is going to say about himself, he is the true manna, the better manna. What's he saying there? Manna from heaven is good. It's real. He's not taking away from that. They needed it for their bodily, but even if they didn't have that, the true manna is Jesus. He's the ultimate. The thing that that bread pointed to was Christ. He's the ultimate. 
that manna from heaven was about Jesus. He's the ultimate. He's the preeminent. Make sense? He's the true light. He's the ultimate. Lights we see in the sky around us have a certain glory to them, don't they? It's not unusual to have somebody on the news or somebody on social media say, hey, go out and look at the sky tonight. Look at the moon. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's radiant. Or to go somewhere and it's just a a blue sky and you see the sun, a big blazing ball of fire in the sky, and to look up and to be overwhelmed by it. The true light, verse 9, is this. All these other splendid lights in the world, they derive their brilliance, they point us to the ultimate light, the preeminent light, who is Jesus Christ. That's why when we get to, and as we saw in Revelation 19, 20, and 21, in the new heaven and new earth, there's no need for sun and moon and stars. Just don't need them anymore. Why? Because you have Jesus, who is the true and ultimate light. We're told in the book of Exodus the people couldn't even look at the face of Moses after he came down from Mount Sinai. Why? Because he'd been in the presence of Almighty God. From his time with God, he was radiating with brilliant light such that his face had to be covered. Moses cannot compare to the ultimate one who radiates the glory of God, which is who? Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Moses, for a moment, gave a picture of it. That was a picture of Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the true and better and more preeminent Moses. All other lights cannot compare to Christ. He is the true light. Not just that he's genuine and real. Yes, that's true. Not just that he's not false. That's true as well. But that he is the source of all light and even more fundamentally, Christ is the truest, the highest, the best, most magnificent light. Jesus shines into the world and reveals God in a way nothing else does and nothing else can. He is the light who reveals God, who is morally pure and righteous. And he is alone in that. Nothing can compare to him. Let me ask you this morning. Every one of us walked in here with some degree of familiarity with John 1 and that Jesus is the true light. That's not the issue. Do we understand he is the preeminent one, the superior one, the one that all other lights point to that none can compare to him? All glory, all worship, all renown goes to him. If you want to know God, you've got to look to Jesus. If you want to to feel the presence of God, you've got to pursue Jesus. If you want to worship God, you've got to worship through Jesus. If you want to pray to God, you've got to go in Jesus' name. He is the preeminent one. And there is no second. He is alone and solitary in that glory. Is Christ that to your soul? He can't just be one among equals. He can't be one a little bit better than other idols in your heart. 
He's the preeminent one. That's what John wants us to understand. He's the true light. The preeminent light. And no other light can compare. Another thing he tells us here. The light of Christ. The true light is Jesus. Not only that Jesus is the true light. But he tells us secondly. Again we're still under this first point. The true light enlightens everyone. Verse 9. It enlightens everyone. So what does that even mean? The true light. The preeminent light. The supreme light. Enlightens everyone. What does it mean that everyone has been enlightened by the true light. Well, we know it cannot mean this. It cannot mean that everyone has been spiritually enlightened. So it has to mean something else. What does it mean? I think biblically and contextually, the answer to this question is this. It means that the true light, which is Jesus Christ, has consciously enlightened everyone about God. Stay with me for just a minute. He's consciously enlightened everyone about God. Now, where would we get that from? Romans chapter 1. We read in Romans chapter 1, as Paul is laying out his diagnosis of the world and the problem, what's the, the great problem in the world and God's judgment against a fallen world, we read in Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. For His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and He goes on and so forth, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things which have been made, so that they are without excuse. The reality of God is known by every human being. Creation, Psalm 19 tells us, reveals the glory of God. Day after day pours forth speech that all of this had to come from a creator. So creation reveals there is a true God, but the text also implies that there is a consciousness about the reality of God that has been placed in every human heart. So the Word, who is the Creator, right? That's John chapter 1. In Him, He created all things. Without Him was not anything that was made. And oh, by the way, in the Creator was life and light. He placed life and light in every human being. And that light is that there is a creator, there is a God. And so it makes sense that through the true light, John chapter 1 verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone when in creation. When he created every human being in the image of God, he stamped the imprint of God upon every human, he enlightened them in the sense of giving them a very basic fundamental knowledge of God. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 1, all men, even when they stand before God, if they lived in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa and the gospel never reached them, it is not unfair for God to send that person to hell because God has given them everything necessary to know that there is a God. Now, they didn't have as much light as we have, which will hold us to a greater accountability. 
but they have enough enlightenment that's been stamped upon them and in creation around them that they will be accountable before a holy God for their sins against Him. And it's the true light who's enlightened every man. And every man then will do one of two things. Either receive this truth or reject it. They'll receive the light or they will reject it. And Paul answers the question for us. Every man has rejected it. We are all in darkness. Dead in sin and trespasses. The true light. The preeminent light. The one and only light that nothing can compare to has enlightened every man about who God is. And then he goes on to tell us more about this light. And this is even more stunning than what we've seen so far. More shocking. This true light was coming into the world. Please don't let our familiarity with this text rob you, rob you of the majesty of that statement. This true light who dwelt in a cosmic temple, the Father, Son, and Spirit, in eternity past, and even in creation, this true light who put everything into existence, is coming into the world. It's a shocking statement. It's unexpected. Now, let me clarify that. It's not unexpected in the sense that we didn't know it was coming because ever since the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, the promise of a Messiah, we knew, the, the people of God knew that the Messiah was coming into the world. What's shocking and astonishing is that the preexistent, eternal, equal with God, transcendent, preeminent light, the cre uncreated creator, he's coming into the world. The one for which none can compare. The exact radiance of the glory of God. He is coming into the world. That he made. Now to fully grasp what John is saying here. We've got to have an understanding of his understanding of the world. This is a problem all throughout John's gospel. And with a surface level understanding of. We hear the word world. And what is pretty much the only thing that comes to our mind. A big globe right. The big globe planet earth. The world that God has made. Well, let's talk about that for just a minute because it's important going all throughout John's gospel. Cosmos is the Greek word for world. It's used 185 times in the New Testament. You don't need to know that. What you do need to know that is this. Over half of those uses are in John's writings. His gospel, his epistle, the book of Revelation. Over half are used by John. In John's gospel alone, 78 times. Now here's where that really jumps off the page to you. In Matthew's gospel, the word is used eight times. In Mark's gospel, three times. In Luke's gospel, three times. 
Do you see the emphasis? Do you see a theme here that John is using 78 times in his gospel, verses 8, 3, and 3, if we look at the synoptics? We better understand, what is John talking about? Because this is a, a theme that's heavy in his mind. What does John have in mind? I can't, just, I can't afford, with such a weighty theme, to just think, when he says world, he's thinking of this big blue ball like we think about. Well, the word cosmos comes from the word order. And certainly in the Greek language and such, cosmos is a word that speaks to all of creation, all of the beauty, all of the order of it. But John gets even more specific than that. John sometimes, and I say sometimes and I mean very infrequently, sometimes refers when he says the world, he's speaking about the created universe. For instance, one of the very few instances is in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world there, the world was made through him. He's talking about the created universe. It's a very rare instance, but there he's using it in that way. Other times he uses the world and he's speaking about people in general. So in chapter 12, verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, look, the world has gone after him. Talking about Jesus, the world, well, what do they mean? Do they mean the universe, the big globe has gone after him? No, I mean, that, that doesn't make sense. Doesn't mean every individual in the world has gone, no, that, that, we just know that's biblically not what happened. It's speaking about just a, a broad group of people in general. The most predominant use of the word world that John uses, it has to do with the created order in rebellion against God. The created order in rebellion against God. When he speaks about the world, most times he's speaking about sinful man and the satanic influences of godlessness in the world. Godless opposition. So instead of place, bigness, John's thinking badness. This is going to alter a lot of things as we go forward looking at the text. It's going to clarify some things for us. When you see the word world, more times than not, John's thinking bad. Bad, not even just bad place, bad influence, evil, sinful, rebellion against God, rebellion against Christ. The world in John's gospel, the word itself, has a decidedly negative tone. It's primarily used of people who are opposed to God and opposed to Christ. One commentator, D.A. Carson, we went through one of his studies a couple of years ago, Don Carson puts it this way, upon close inspection of John's gospel, only a handful of occurrences of cosmos are neutral. So think about a positive use of it, a negative use of it, and a neutral use of it. He says only a handful are neutral, and that would be like the created universe, the big ball. Very minimal, he says. The vast majority are negative. He says there are no unambiguously positive occurrences. Say that again. None. No positive occurrences. So when we read passages like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, don't beat your chest and think, oh, how wonderful, what a beautiful thing. There is depth to that passage, and it begins with understanding the world he came to. It's not just this big ball, not just this big place. 
is the depth of depravity and evil and godlessness. And it's gonna, we're going to have to focus our thinking on that. He was coming, verse 9 says, the true light who enlightens everyone. He was coming into the world. Don't think globe. Think he was coming into a climate that hated him, that was in rebellion to him, that didn't want him, that had refused him because he had enlightened every man to know there is a God and man had already refused God. And now you have the true light who is the radiance of God coming into the world and the world wants him dead. They don't want him, but he's coming anyway. The emphasis on he's coming not into a big ball, he's coming to a very bad system that opposes him from the get-go. Oh, how we need to understand this. This speaks to the depth of Jesus. How do you handle when somebody doesn't like you? You want to go spend time with them? When you know you're not wanted, when you know people talk about you behind your back, or you want to go and, hey, let's go to lunch, let's go to... No. I don't, I, I don't need it. I don't want to hear the pain. I don't, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to spend time with bad people who don't want me, who don't like me, who want to talk about me behind my back. And you are the same way. Now, look at what Jesus is doing. To a people who don't want him, who hate him, who from the moment of his birth want him dead. They're killing the firstborn children until they make sure they get him dead. He's coming anyway. The true light is coming into the world. Now here's what we learn about this light coming into the world. The light which comes into the world has an effect upon the world he comes into. The light divides. It divides and separates. As the light, we talked about this in verses 4 and 5, what light does is it exposes darkness, right? It's like when you go into a dark room, you turn on the light, boom, it all comes on, right? Darkness flees. It exposes anything that was hidden under the shadows. Now it's not hidden anymore. The light, the true light, Jesus is coming into the world. And those who hate the light, those who love their sin, those who don't want to be exposed, do they want Jesus? Do they want the true light to come? No, that's going to ruin everything. That's going to expose them. That's going to, everything's going to come out to light. Those who love their sin hate Jesus. And that's what Jesus says in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Turn over with me. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light. Lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. So the true light, he's coming into the world. It's not an option. The true light, which enlightens every man, was coming into the world, and immediately 
causes separation, causes division. Those who love darkness and those who love light. Those who love their sin and those who love God. Do you see that? So you have this division. And all throughout John's gospel, he talks about this thing. John chapter 8, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What he himself is setting, there's, a, there's a, uh, a separation there. Those who walk in light and those who walk in darkness. John 14, I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Again, he's saying the light has come into the world, and it's created a division. Those who love the darkness and hate the light, and those who love the light and hate the darkness. This is an amazing thing. John just wants us to understand. He's going to go more in depth as he goes on in his gospel, but he wants us to understand the true light, the preeminent light, who reveals God, the radiance of his glory, who enlightens every man so that no man is without excuse. There is a God has been stamped upon them by the light, by the creator. He's coming into the world. An astonishing thing. And as we move from verse 9 into verses 10 and 11, the mood shifts. Verse 9 ends with the light is coming into the world. Everything up until verse 1 through verse 9 has kind of been like a, if you like music, if you like symphony, it's been just high energy symphony. It's been passionate. It's been exciting. It's been glorious. It's been the hallelujah chorus. Now verses 10 and 11, it's more like a, a haunting bellow. The second point of the message, the darkened hearts of men. The darkened hearts of men. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What's John drawing our attention to? He's not saying that Jesus was born, he came and lived, and that people didn't know he existed. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he came the true light, the radiance of God's glory, the uncreated creator who is God, came in the flesh and dwelt among men. And there was a failure to acknowledge him for who he was. A failure to acknowledge and to pursue an intimate relationship with him. There was a coldness toward Jesus. A dryness toward Jesus. This is the true light. The radiance of the glory of God. The uncreated creator. Walking among men. And there was a coldness about him. A dryness. There was no warmth. There was no worship. They didn't pursue him because they didn't want to. They were blind to the reality of who Christ is. And it get, not just in general, verse 11 says he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. The idea here is he came home. 
We talked to our kids this morning that God raised up a family, a man for whom he was going to build a family through whom the Messiah would come. And who was the father of that family? Abraham. Abraham had children, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Through one of those lines of the family came the nation of Israel through Jacob's line. An entire nation, entire family that had the word of God. God sent prophets to them. The Messiah is coming. Malachi in the Old Testament closes out. He's on his way. For 400 years there's silence. But then John the Baptist is preparing the way among his own people. Hey, your parents have been telling you about a promise God made long ago. The lamb is on his way. He's almost here. And these people, his own family, refused him. Had no interest in him. He came to that very people, Abraham's family, the line of Jacob, under the rule of King David. That line that had been promoted all along. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And his own people, that very family, did not receive him. This was the people who should have known. They'd been told for centuries. They should have been ready. They should have welcomed him. They should have been expecting him. They had the Old Testament. John the Baptist, they have him. But they didn't. Now, there were some who did. You have... Simeon in the temple right right after Jesus was born. He was expecting. You had Anna, the 84-year-old, who was always in the temple praying and fasting, waiting for the redemption of Israel. But the reason that Simeon and Anna get attention in the New Testament is because they are the exception. Because they were rare. Those were two who were expecting, and everybody, nobody else was. And this has always been the story of Israel. Going back to the Old Testament, you can go back to Isaiah chapter 1, where God says, Hear, O heavens, and give earth. The Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. They do not understand. Isaiah chapter 65, God says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. All throughout the Old Testament, God is bringing to light the unfaithfulness of His own people. So it's not surprising when the true light who enlightens every man has come to earth, they reject Him too. They didn't receive Him. And the idea here of receiving Him, it carries the idea of intimacy. What was expected when the true light comes into the world among those who knew who He was and knew why He was coming, that knew their need for Him, that He was all, the expectancy was they would receive Him intimately. Not decisionistically. Intimately. It's said when Joseph took Mary to be his wife, he received her. That was a lot more than just a decision. There was an intimacy there. When Christ, the true light, came, the people should have desired a relationship with him. 
because he was the fulfillment of God's promise. He was their hope. But they didn't. And one of the things John's going to bring out as we go through his gospel, Jesus had plenty of followers in his public ministry. We're, we're going to get right into Jesus' miracles in, in chapters 2 and 3. And you're going to see right away, he's got myriads of followers. But even Jesus himself says, even to the crowds around them, most of you are following me only because of what you think I can do for you. You're not here from me. Most of you are not true believers. And all throughout John's gospel, you're going to see Jesus exposing, there's a lot of people who follow me and cheer me, but it's only about them. They want me on their terms, when they need me, when it's convenient for me. It's not about me, and those are not my true believers. Hang on tight, because it's not the words of a contemporary pastor who's trying to chastise wheat and tares in a church. This is Jesus himself who says, listen, I, I, I see you mouthing the words. I see your active presence in my, but I know the heart. Jesus is very clear that among even those who acted like they followed him in that day, most didn't receive him intimately. Why? Why? The true light was here. It goes back to John chapter 3. Jesus himself said, men loved darkness rather than the light. The world loves darkness. It hates the light. And Jesus is not just any light, he's the true light, the preeminent light, who is the radiance of the glory of God. And if light exposes darkness, what does the radiance of God in sheer holiness expose? The question is valid for us this morning. We're here this morning with a professed love for Jesus, but is it a real love? Is our knowledge of Jesus as the light, he's the true light. Do we have that relationship with him where we welcome, shine the light? And yes, you're going to find wickedness, you're going to find sin, you're going to find idolatry, you're going to find compromise, but shine the light because I love you more than I love it. Shine the light, the true light, who is the radiance of God, who has made propitiation for my sins that I can repent and run to you and find forgiveness of sins. Come, true light. I welcome you, true light. I want you, true light. You're going to see I've worshipped other false lights, but come, shine, true light, because you are all to me. Or, as you search your heart this morning, you're here this morning, but you're trying to keep the true light at arm's length. Because you fully intend to walk out of here and continue in your life of sin. The lying, the slander, the pride, the unbelief, the idolatry, the lust, the stealing. I fully intend, I'm going to go out of here and continue in it. If that's you, you're keeping Christ at arm's length, aren't you? You don't, you don't welcome Christ intimately into your soul because you know He's going to wreak havoc. He's going to expose. But He does it not just to tear you down, but He does it to show that He is greater. He is better. He is the preeminent one. Whatever it is you're selling out of to have it, to forsake Christ, 
Christ comes in and says, I'm the true light. <laughs> I'm the preeminent one. Whatever your fountain you're drinking of, whatever you're tasting of, whatever light you're, you're, you're warming your heart against, let me come in and show you what you're missing. Repent, forsake all else, turn to your king. Verses 10 and 11 implicate the whole world. It's not just a Jewish rejection, it's a worldwide rejection. Every one of us are by nature hostile to God and hostile to Christ, hostile to the true light. We all resist Christ in certain ways. Now in this room, it may or may not be a very hostile thing. It may or may not be, I hate Jesus, I don't want Jesus. And if that's you this morning, well then own up to it. But it may be more subtle things. Maybe you just want Jesus on your own terms. Jesus is a good moral teacher. Jesus is a beacon of love, a shining example. But I don't want him being that true light that exposes everything in my life. The preeminent one. I've got something else. Some pay no mind to Jesus at all. They're focused more upon their career, their finances, their family, their education, their marriage, their sin, their hobby. And Jesus is the God of their parents. And it just feels good. Raise your children in a Christian environment so we come to church. But you're trying to pursue Jesus on your own terms. He's the true light who came into the world. You can't have him on your terms. You can't keep him at arm's length. You must, you must repent and turn to Him as your Lord. Don't scoff. Don't shrug your shoulders. Don't think, well, I've got enough understanding of Jesus. I don't, I don't need to go all this depth and everything. That's a rejection of Jesus. He is who He is in His fullness. And you take Him as He is in His fullness or not at all. This morning, you must come to Jesus. And we'll talk more about this next week. But do at least recognize verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's your good news. If you find this morning that this true light, man, you've just been keeping him at arm's length and you, you hate the light because you love your sin, Ask God to show, open your eyes to see the glory of Christ in His fullness. That He is all, that He is everything. And believe that in Him, through His life, death, and resurrection, there is forgiveness for your sins and reconciliation with Him. This morning, run to Christ, the true light. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, but run to Him. He is the true light.